Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony Caldellas, your host. I knew that I wanted to do an episode on the social aspects of what we're experiencing, uh, what's uh, going by the name of uh, social distancing, but there's no very clear Byzantine analog uh, of that. Uh, what we're experiencing, moreover, is not uniform. Uh, some of us uh, find ourselves in actual isolation, removed from the normal social context that we engage with other people. Uh, whereas others are finding ourselves in enforced uh, company uh, for prolonged periods of time with people we don't normally spend that much time with. Uh, as one headline I saw was, uh, I can't wait for social distancing to end so that I can be alone. It's also this very strange combination of voluntary and mandatory um, social distancing at the same time. Like we understand the reasons for it, but if you don't, there are also state sanctions uh, for it in, in many places. There's nothing quite like this in Byzantium. I, I cycled through a number of uh, social behaviors and institutions, and none of them seemed exactly to fit. This was certainly not the case with the large monasteries, um, which represented a kind of removal from normal social life, but were themselves social institutions where you were embedded in a group of people all the time. Um, there were active communities. They almost sort of replicated all the modes of social life and even analogs of family life with fathers and brothers and so forth. And it didn't seem exactly right. In the end, I settled on uh, solitary asceticism um, as the closest analog to discuss because we have wonderful texts about it that go into some psychological detail. I was also interested in the essential, non-essential breakdown of our economic activities during this time uh, because it seems that uh, probably a majority of people's work is still essential and is being carried out, uh, but it's not the part that tends to be favored for internet representation. So the internet tends to be dominated by people who, whose work is, in that, in that sense, not essential, that is in keeping the economy and the food supply going, um, but who do more um, intellectual work, knowledge economy, and who have the means and the resources and the time to represent their experience online. Um, and this is interesting because in the Byzantine context, we see that um, we have many uh, representations of ascetic, solitary life, and those representations, uh, mostly texts, um, they tend to focus on the individual who's isolating and, and highlight that aspect um, of his, in some cases, her life, leaving out the support network because everybody needs a support network. Uh, hardly anybody can live actually alone, be self-sufficient um, in uh, uh, not just a social, but also in an economic and biological sense, like how are you going to find food? And these are aspects that are all somewhat elided in the, in, the, in the primary sources about Byzantine asceticism, and I wanted to draw them out uh, in the same way that I think it's very important in our time um, that this event has revealed, in some ways, who, who's essential for keeping us alive uh, and who isn't. 
um, and and yet who who gets recognized for that and 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 who doesn't? My guests for this discussion are ideal interlocutors for this question of uh, living life both in the margins and in the extreme um, Christian life. Um, and they are Ellen Muehlberger, the University of Michigan, whom you may recall from episode two, I believe, and David Brackey uh, from uh, Ohio State University, uh, who has appeared uh, previously in episode 13. And they have both uh, written about, uh, written brilliantly about living the Christian life of, of prayer and taking it to the extremes and what kinds of psychological and social uh, and imaginative uh, consequences that has. So here then is my discussion with uh, Ellen and David about social distancing in Byzantium. Well, hello, uh, Ellen and David. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Same. Thank you. This is uh, your second appearance for both of you. Um, And I, uh, so obviously I've been thinking a lot about social distancing and Byzantine social distancing. And from, <laughs> for my part, I feel like I've been preparing my, for this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the memes I got, and I'm sure you've both received a ton of them, um, is, is this, um, it's this medieval image of a scholar in, in, in his study and he's writing away and whatever. And it says the philologist above that. And next to it is the panel that says the philologist in quarantine. And it's just exactly the same image. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I wanted to, so I've been thinking about uh, this question in, in a Byzantine context or late antique. Uh, and what struck me was how difficult it was to think of people who, who are not hermits or ascetics who are living alone. Uh, just to, even an image of like a bachelor just kind of, you know, living an unmarried life by himself in a city, perhaps something like that. it's very difficult to find. Um, and it, it occurs to me that all of the people we know and populations and individuals, they're, they're always some sort of part of a group. Um, and their social roles are defined by their relationships with all of these other people and other groups and, and so forth. And it's just very difficult to find solitary people um, in normal social life. Now, we'll talk, obviously, about the people who chose to self-isolate. Um, but I was just wondering if you had any, any comments about that, like an ancient or medieval society, about, about the way in which um, people appear to us always as part of groups or, or in social context. Um, Ellen, you want to start? Sure. I mean, I think... Uh, to be a part of a group is to be a part of a drama. So a lot of our sources the reason why things were written down is because something was happening and it's hard to narrate um, the drama of one's isolation, (laughs) though possible. So I think that's first a um, archival bias, right? The sources that we have are all about things that happen between people. So it has to necessarily be happening between people who are in contact. But then I think there's a larger, um, I don't know if economic is the right word or sort of structural issue, which is, it's very difficult to support oneself living alone, even now. I mean, I think, you know, we're finding that people who are right now self-isolated by themselves, they depend on a lot of other people for food, for help, for physical labor. And so if you think about that in the ancient world, I think it would be very difficult to literally live by oneself and be able to eat, let alone be able to cook what one could, could eat or, 
take care in terms of one's clothing or shelter. Like you just simply need other people. So I think we actually live in this strange time where it is possible to live by yourself, or at least it's, you know, it's a thinkable thing to live by oneself. I, I was, I was, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, I think it's Aristotle where he thinks about what would the world be like without slaves. And he imagines a world where the utensils make all the food themselves and, you know, wood is just picks up and moves all by itself. It's, it's impossible for him to imagine a world where there isn't just help and support. Obviously he comes from a very privileged background, but nonetheless, it's just impossible for him to imagine being what we would call completely self-sufficient and alone. He doesn't know how that could happen. Yeah, I, I recall uh, some of our some of our ascetic scholars who, like Gregory Nazianzus, for example, even when he would go on his ascetic retreats, would always have his servants with him. Yes, <laughs> yes. But this was this was part of living the life of ascetic hardship. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. the, the, the case that I know um, is from the miracles of St. Artemius, a seventh century Constantinople. There are a lot of little urban stories and vignettes in that text. Um, and this is a case, uh, so my friend Stefano Sefsimiadis had uh, brought this case to my attention years ago. And it is the case of a bachelor who lives alone in an apartment in Constantinople and he's of a certain age and someone steals his fancy cloak and he can't go to church, he feels. And he goes on an adventure to find his stolen cloak, but he's alone and it's the saint who helps him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, if you think about it, it's really rare. Yes, um, it's a miracle. Yeah. It is, and even the cases, like when you raise the case of Gregory who goes into his ascetic isolation by himself and he defines it as being alone even though he's surrounded by servants, it raises the question of who counts as a person Right. Who disrupts your isolation? If servants don't disrupt it, are they actually registering on the same level as a human being or a person as you are? You know, when you say I'm here by myself, yet I'm surrounded by five people who are here to take care of me. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important. We'll get into that in the case of, uh, of ascetics, particularly hermits. Um, and because they're the only people I know who sort of willingly say self-isolate, or at least that was the ideal, however it worked out in practice. Uh, the only case I can think of, of of people for whom this was done involuntarily were exiles or fugitives. Um, and I don't think that this has really been studied, like the experience of being in, in exile, and we know a lot of bishops were. Uh, and the only cases of actual loneliness that I've seen in texts is, like I know Severus of Antioch complained of being lonely when he was hiding from Justinian's officials in Egypt. But he wasn't strictly alone because the books kept coming and going somehow. So. Right. No, I mean, there's, there were assistants. And I think right now I'm going to give a shout out to two different early career people who are working on projects or just yeah. projects. Actually, both of them came out from University of California Press in the last year that um, examined not the experience of being in exile, but the self-presentation of being in exile. So right. Jennifer Berry from the University of Mary Washington just finished a book called Bishops in Flight where she examines um, the way that different bishops who have been exiled present themselves and sort of make their case from afar. And then I'm thinking, um, I'm a student of David's and a, another student of David's, Bradley Storen, finished a book about Gregor of Nazianzus. And part of that book examines what his experience of illness and isolation was like, or at least how he presented it in his letters. 
both of those people, I think, are good future podcast. Absolutely, uh, yes, visitors. yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, David, you wanted to add something? No, no, that's that's great. Um, I, I also recall uh, John Chrysostom's letters, which I think we only have his letters from exo- from the last part of his life where he's sent off to these forts. Um, and I think he received a lot of visitors. They were coming and going, uh, crowds, right, going to him in exile, or such as it was. But I in one of the letters, he complains that there are no shops where he was and there was nothing to buy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, think, I don't think he's being entirely serious. I think it's some sort of joke. But anyway. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. So let's talk about people who chose to do this. And I think that we really have to focus on uh, on hermits, that is in the broad distinction of ascetic practice, and so not um, groups that um, lived in monasteries or kinovia. As far as I can tell, in, in the monasteries, the ideal was to never be alone, if, if possible, that is to always have other someone else either watching you or because who knows what you get up to in, you know, <laughs> Yes, that's true. I mean, uh, they didn't want, you know, you always, you never, you didn't sleep alone. You didn't work alone. There was always um, someone, there was always a surveillance system. But there are, there are indications in some monastic communities that individual monks could take on within a monastery for a set period of time, isolation. That is, you could say, I wish to spend the next two weeks completely alone and they would let you be in a cell and they would bring you food and stuff. But it was always a temporary thing. It was never for the long term and you didn't, you know. So there are instances of that, but yes, I mean, the whole point of being in a community was to um, was to be with other people who could support you and, you know, be part of your life and correct you when you went wrong and so on. Was this a kind of privilege? Because I imagine that if you put yourself in isolation for a few weeks, like you remove yourself from the labor pool of the monastery and impose on others to bring you food and such, right? That's right. So there's always an approval system. And I expect it's only for senior monks who could be trusted to actually be doing this for good reasons and so on. But um, yeah, so it was it was never something, it's, it's probably not very widespread because you don't have a lot of rules that talk about it, but you do have some. And, um, but you know, it's a temporary thing and meant to be special. Although, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a temporary thing for special monks who have some specific need in the monastery. Ellen, you wanted to... I was going to ask David, if you think about the way that sickness happens in a monastery, um, was there any kind of quarantine or was it simply when you were sick, you went to the infirmary and others cared for you even more intensely than they did in your normal everyday life? Right. I don't think they had any... Um, a sense of disease transmission through people. I'm not so sure that they did. So, um, yeah, and, I mean, from all our evidence, these infirmaries were, when you got sick, you went to that. You were not isolated in the sense that you were all by yourself because there would be attending monks and other sick monks, presumably there. And it was not at all ideal because you weren't eating with the group. Eating is a big deal and you need to always be at the meal. So, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not aware of any sense that, that they ever had that someone should be left alone in the sense that it, for example, it would be a danger to himself or others mm-hmm. or people to come near them. Yeah, there's some vague references to that um, in the in the Justinianic plague ah. um, in Constantinople there. Um, yeah, because they, they had no idea how this was transmitted. 
Um, and in fact, it, it wasn't transmitted necessarily from, from patient to other person. It was a totally different kind of, right? Um, wasn't a pneumatic uh, plague. Um, and so they, they, they had no idea that doctors who were treating the, the patients or handling the bodies were not infected any more than anyone else. Uh, nevertheless, there are references to people who just shut themselves up in their house and you know waited for it all to pass. Um, and later, some whole families were found dead and so forth from the plague. Um, and also, I, I recall that John of Ephesus reports that in Constantinople, people got it into their head that the disease was being transmitted or carried by monks. And, and they would avoid monks or throw stones at them mm-hmm. just to keep them away. Right. <laughs> Wow. And he did not like that. Well, well, you can tell in some urban environments in the 5th, 6th centuries, monks, some monks that were not in a monastery were seen somewhat like we would see homeless people, you know, viewed in a prejudicial way as dangerous and caring of disease and as kind of urban menaces and pests, not so much holy people to be embraced, but, um, but problematic and something you wanted to stay away from. Yeah. yeah, let's talk a little bit about the varieties of, of, of her, the hermit life. Um, so c- can you just tell our listeners just some sort of the places and ways in which um, some of these ascetics remove themselves from social life? What kind of settings and how, how do they live there? Uh, Ellen, you want to start? Or? Sure. Um, well, some monasteries had kind of outward or, you know, satellite places that you could go that was attached to, you know, not physically attached to the monastery, but still supported by the monastery to do the kind of self-isolation that David was talking about. Other um, indications of where people self-isolated tend to come in hagiography. So it's unclear whether these things actually happened or whether they were dramatic enough that um, saints' lives and monks' lives just tell us they happened. So Uh, people famously would go to tombs and try to live in a tomb, or there are monks that try to live in cisterns. Um, There's actually a scholar, Katie Kleinkopf, who's going to be at the University of Louisville next year, who just graduated from University of Tennessee, who wrote an entire dissertation about the structures that ascetics lived in and how they became a kind of in her terms, a body house. So she writes about cisterns as a thing that becomes sort of the outer structure or outer shell of one's body, tombs getting presented as the outer structure or outer shell of one's body. So there's a way that at least in the literature, self-isolation, it almost becomes like an escape pod. You know, like there's a, there's not just, I go out by myself Mm. and live in the elements, but I go out and I live in a cave or I live in a place that will protect me in sort of the way that my, social and economic structure back at the monastery will, or back in the village will, except it involves no other human beings. Yeah, um, now when you're in Egypt, a lot of these tombs, um, I, I've been reading about this recently, it's quite fascinating, are old pharaonic tombs. Yeah. <laughs> like don't imagine something plebeian. I mean, if you're gonna go live in a tomb. <laughs> That's right. Um, and with all I mean, the decor- These were large tombs that had often multiple rooms in them. Yeah. Egypt and um, and of course there are also naturally occurring caves in the cliffside of the desert and uh, we know these monks were in there because they drew things on walls they wrote inscriptions on the wall they wrote their names and they um, willed them when they died to successors to own them 
you know, we're not quite sure what owning meant in that period, but nonetheless, they had them. So yeah, they, these were not tiny dwellings, but they were also in Egypt, especially mud brick built domiciles as they're, well. They're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people, yeah. they would build things. And of course there are extensive excavations in Northern Egypt of surviving hermitages as they're called. But of course they all are in a network, right? They're not, one and then there's another one three miles away they're close to each other but nonetheless but they built things to mud brick right and when when saint anthony went out into the desert right he also lived in some tombs for some time um right he started out uh, if the life of anthony is to be believed by athanasius he started out just kind of living as a homeless person if you want to put that that way on the kind of edge of his village then he moved into a tomb that was also kind of just outside the village. And then eventually he went into the desert and found what's called an abandoned fortress of some kind, which had, which he could move into and, and close a door or something like that. And then eventually he moved far away to a mountain close to the Red Sea where there was a small um, oasis and there were caves in which he could live, so. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some of the, well, then they, uh, some groups established communities in these tombs. Right. And so that's not what we're talking about here. Um, I, I remember a, a case, this from the 7th century when the Persians invaded Egypt, and one of the, actually he's a bishop, and I think a saint of the Coptic church, starts with a B, I can't remember the name right now, and, and he went off into a tomb where one of the mummies rose up. <laughs> so he goes, yes, one of the ancient mummies rose up, uh, and asked him for forgiveness that for being a pagan because he lived in you know the before time but mm. um, anyway um, okay so there's some of these solitaries take up in caves and tombs and mud brick enclosures and so on but then there are others who uh, try to practice a solitary life in the elements right like exposed mm -hmm. uh, so what are some of the varieties of those um, well there's um, a our best source for this, at least in the early Byzantine period, is uh, Theodoret of Cyrus's uh, religious history. And he talks about, for example, people who would build a kind of um, giant fenced area and live within that and be exposed to the elements but cut off from everyone else, perhaps with a little window or something that people could see into to what they are doing. Um, and uh, so that's, that's one big, way to do it. Another way is to indeed create another kind of structure that you just kind of move inside to see. And then of course, which I don't think is really isolating, there's the whole pillar concept, getting up on a pillar above everybody else. So those are, and those are all for the most part, exposed to the elements kinds of ways. Yeah, especially the stylites. I mean, they, I mean, obviously you couldn't be alone alone, but you are up there. No, and it's a performance, I think. In the same way that uh, there was the environmental activist a few years ago who climbed a tree and stayed for quite right. some time, you know, everybody knew where she was. Her, I think her name was Julia Butterfly. Is that right? I thought it was Lisa um, Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Uh, but, you know, everybody knows where the pillar is. People start coming to the pillar. He's visible there. People, according to Theodoret's religious history, people are inspecting him and inspecting his body at different points, you know, setting a ladder against the pillar and going up and looking to see what he's got. So I wonder if that, that may be physical isolation, 
but it's definitely not social isolation. Not social, I no. think that is one of the things that raises a, um, a, a problem, which is when you self-isolate, you leave behind a lot of people who care what you're doing. And especially if you're doing it in a way that's extraordinary, you draw attention. So it can be counterproductive to isolate in a way that is visible, even in the slightest, you know, peering through the window of one of these enclosures is still peering at someone and looking at them while they're practicing this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I'm, I'm, I think about this issue of isolation now um, because, you know, some of us get to be isolated and some don't. And I, I'm thinking of isolation in terms of whether you're increasing or decreasing the cost and labor on other people. Right. Um, yeah. So if you go out into an enclosure, like, like you just mentioned, uh, David, and maybe you have your own garden and maybe there's a little stream running by there. Okay. You, you, you can practice this sort of self-sufficient life, you know, for a little bit or, or to a certain degree, but I, a stylite, I think is a, like a, a performance, almost a diva, right. That right. increases the labor that others have to do to keep you going. That's right. A whole, um, well, like a mini city, city has to develop around the stylite to uh, manage his um, um, his hygiene, to give him his food. And uh, Simeon, the most famous stylite of all, obviously had essentially office hours every day for <laughs> hours where people would come and talk to him. And it was known this is when he's available to talk. So, I mean, they're really, and, and then you needed a place because it was out there, the location, right? It wasn't right outside town, you had to go there. So they had to build a hostel for the pilgrims. There even people had to be fed. There needed to be a church because many of them decided to be baptized based on that and so on. Um, so if you were to visit there today, which I'm not sure what you would find now after so many years of warfare, but um, you know, the ruins there are extensive and show quite a you know, large, um, organization and capacity for a lot of people to be present, eating, drinking, sleeping. It's like a, like a Graceland, right? Like for the... <laughs> yeah, for yes. The I mean, you know, and there was a whole, I mean, it's very similar to any kind of ancient pilgrimage site um, of any religious affiliation. There was a long walk that you took up to Simeon's Pillar that was, had arches over it, um, that, you, you know, that announced you were going to some special place. And uh, so it was, you know, yeah, it was a, exactly. It was very much like um, if, you know, a couple of years ago, I went to the site of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. It's the same, in, you know, Mexico City. It's the same kind of thing that you've seen around Simeon. So not at all quiet. I'm sure he was never in a situation where he wasn't hearing other people and, you know, so forth. Yeah. So why do these people do this? Um, you know, or at <laughs> least what what are the ostensible goals that they're trying to accomplish by doing this, even as represented in the text. Um, uh, is this something like a moral hygiene, like to, you know, cleanse oneself of moral impurities that accumulate during the course of social life? Is it to remove themselves from temptation uh, or to pray for their redemption from guilt, whether um, generalized human guilt uh, or some specific uh, case? Uh, I know actually there's a, a solitary lived in a cave. This is 11th century, and he was from Athens originally, and he had killed a girl mm -hmm. in his earlier life, and he decided to spend the rest of his life in a cave. 
Uh, so you know that's one. So how do you how do you interpret these these behaviors? I think all of those motivations are represented variously in the literature. So um, there are obvious parallels or uh, trajectories to draw from earlier philosophical isolation. So spending time by oneself or living in the body that one has without social support. Um, there's the idea that the world is full of temptations and you must flee those temptations. But there's the kind of backside of that idea, which is when you are by yourself, you are more likely to engage in battle with all of the kinds of impulses that you have as a human being. So why not just get right to the fight instead of distracting yourself with all the things that people in the village do in their normal everyday life. You just go out and you spend time with the difficult parts of yourself and or the difficult things that are attacking you so that you can fight them more easily and become more pure. That's right. I mean, we actually have a remarkably few um, testimonies from actual hermits about why they do this, right? I mean, it's mm. usually written about them, right? Um, but one of the few we do that's very early is from a guy named Amonos, who was a disciple of Antony. And um, this is Egypt, so late fourth century. And it's precisely what Ellen says. He says, if you live with other people in the city, you get comfort from them. They help you in your fight uh, with sin and your own um, flaws. And so you need to move into isolation and into a cell where it's you and Satan. And you can't rely on other people. You have to rely only on yourself. Why is it wrong to rely on other people? Uh, because I think it enables you to avoid the true source of your own sinfulness and your own temptations, right? It, it enables you to kind of take the, the focus off of your own, your own sinfulness, your own peculiar temptations, your own peculiar vulnerabilities. Um, for other people. Now, your argument is perfectly great and in fact will eventually be made in monasticism. That is, increasingly as time goes on, actually monasticism turns against the hermit ideal and really says, no, only very few people can do it, you really shouldn't, you need the help of others, so forth and so on. But um, yeah, no, these early people, some of them saw it very much as um, uh, relying on others would mean you would always remain weak. And so it's very much a kind of I'm strong in the battle, kind of a warrior mentality. There's a, uh, there's a raft of vocabulary that are used in these sources about how the monks are athletes, mm -hmm. how they're um, in contests, like wrestling contests with their sins and other entities. And you could make a comparison to contemporary athleticism. So I ride my bike a lot, for example. And I ride sometimes, not now, but at times I've ridden in organized events where every 10 miles there's a little aid station with some Gatorade and some snacks and a nice bathroom. But I also ride in events that are fully self-supported. So for example, this spring I was slated to do, but it's been canceled, a ride that goes from East Lansing down to Ann Arbor and back. It's about 130 miles in one day, fully self-supported. That is my partner can't give me water. I have to find it or buy it somewhere. Um, I have to ride by myself. So I'm not like drafting on someone else. And there is, I'll say a certain um, satisfaction in the idea that I would be accomplishing that by myself. It also requires a lot more training on my part and a lot more development. 
And I think it's a similar thing that um, if you have the community to help you, you're relying on that help and you're not necessarily accomplishing as much as you will. You're not hardening yourself up as much as you will if you do it by yourself. See, I understand that logic. Um, it's sort of intuitive. Um, but in, in wrestling with the logic of the literature that we have about asceticism, I've, I've also found the, the opposite claim made, and that is that um, you're not, like if, you're, if you remove yourself from the social context, you're just making it easy for yourself not to succumb to temptation. The true, you know, spiritual athlete is someone who can walk through a mall and not buy anything. Right? Like, right, right. It, it's only in the most immersed, like immerse yourself in temptation, but don't succumb to it. That's, that's the guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, living in community, in a religious community is not an easy thing. You know, you have the help of other people, but then there's because the other people. people. <laughs> right. You know, this Amonos I was just talking about, I mean, all these things he says in an argument, actually, with other monks who have decided they wish to live in community. And he's explaining why not. But his ultimate model actually is um, people like biblical figures like John the Baptist, Elijah, who he says go out become strong on their own because they face their own demons, so to speak, but then do return actually to the human world, if you wanted to society, um, to be of aid to others and because they are now strong enough to um, resist within community and so forth. And so some of them do see it as a temporary rather than say permanent mm -hmm. thing. Now temporary may mean years, not you know what we hope mm -hmm. we're facing, which we hope is months. I'm now thinking is the hopeful thing, but uh, nonetheless, there, you know, it's it, this thing that you're talking about, they go back and forth on exactly so. Yeah, because the moral logic flips depending on, on how you look at it. Um, so, exactly how isolated were they? I mean, let's talk about some of the practicalities here. So, how did they sustain themselves um, in their different environments? Because that I think the text would like us to believe that. You know, I mean, not only that supernatural things were happening, but that feats of self-denial and renunciation were taking place that sound impossible. Um, and in practice, I think we now know that they were actually much more embedded in, in networks of exchange and human company. Um, so um, is that right? I mean, so what, what, do we, what, are the, what do we know about the practicalities that push against the idealized images? Um, well, you know, if you read... Um, say, monastic literature like the sayings of the Desert Fathers where they talk about hermits and living alone, um, what often happens, as you notice, is a disciple pops up. So often these hermits have actually more like two-room huts or caves that are multiple. And, you know, the hermit is in his own room being socially isolated, but he has a disciple who's living outside. This should actually sound fairly familiar to folks right now, actually, the idea of someone within a household being isolated right. outside. Huh. And so that's a very typical model. Um, according to Athanasius, when Antony was spent, spent, what was it, 14, 20 years, something like this, in this abandoned fort, he was brought bread twice a year, was brought out to him. Because, well, the Egyptians in those ha days had some sort of bread that was essentially hardtack, you know, it was, um, and it could last forever, and you just added some water to it, and it became edible. And apparently, you could make six months of that, it would survive. 
And so people had to come regularly to bring that stuff to him. Um, so, you know, and even when he moved far away into a mountain, there was still people who would bring stuff to him, which gave him a great source of anxiety. So eventually he learned how to build his, make his own garden and so on. But you still hear that there's a disciple or two there with him. So there's, it's, it's, there's, you know, there, what happens is that there's often a one or two person support structure who comes back and forth and perhaps eventually that disciple will himself someday become a quote unquote hermit and live by himself. I would say that though um, the kind of deprivation quote unquote that we're all living under right now is things like, will there be an avocado? Not <laughs> do I have to eat hardtack and am I going to soak it in water or am I going to indulge myself this week and soak it in oil? which is something that the sources report, you know, there's a lot of gradation of if you are very good at self-isolating, then you only use water or you eat a few vegetables when you're sick, but then you return to the hardtack kind of uh, nutrition when you're not sick. So in the same way that I think all food cultures eventually make a set of gradations about what's better and what's worse, what's more moral and what's less moral, even in this extremely limited menu, they also had that kind of gradation, I think, right. in part because what else will one pay attention to? So soaking in oil was a more of a more luxurious, right, than, than soaking it in your tears right. <laughs> as you cry over your sins. <laughs> this isn't an actual thing, but tears have salt, right? So you might as well, <laughs> you know? Right, but you have like, to have a water supply. I mean, that was the. I mean, that's absolutely essential. And um, and so you know, Antony in both of his long-term abodes, this fortress and then this mountain, both had natural occurring water sources. But if you don't, someone has to bring you that that water as well. And and yes, as Ellen said, you know, then you every now and then they say, well, when can you have wine? So you know, there's a there is a gradation in what they're doing. Right. You, you um, once had us read, I'm remembering in a class, you had us read a piece by Daniel Kainer about eulogiae, like the, can you say something about that? Because I'm not remembering all the details. Well, um, you know, Daniel Kainer and his book on wandering monks, which, you know, are completely scary to ecclesiastical leaders, but nonetheless, um, you know, he, he's been doing a lot of recent work on this concept of a blessing, a eulogia, and people would bring stuff to monks for them to bless as a kind of gift offering. But somehow the stories often are that these somehow multiply and become plentiful, right? When they should not, you know, when it's somehow miraculous. But clearly there's some, you know, there's also a lay support system of people bringing things that um, the hermit monk prays over and so forth and obviously partakes of, but also gives back. So there's kind of an economic kind of system that develops around these people. It's interesting, Anthony, because earlier you asked about the motivations of people who were choosing to self-isolate. But I think an, another side of that question is, what does it give a society to have someone self-isolated and support them in these ways that clearly go beyond just supporting one's own family? Right. Um, you mean in terms of, of spiritual support? Right, and why, why would it seem like a good thing to have one person, as you say, out of the labor pool, out of the community, and how is it not financially only, but financially and spiritually worth it to support them? 
Yeah, well, it seems they, they performed a lot of services, um, yeah. certainly in terms of giving advice and uh, you know, resolving disputes and making prophecies and all the, you know, whatever, whatever you need. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the dietary regimen was certainly, would certainly have been culturally conditioned. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's quite different from our own to find what they regarded as essential, what was punishing food, what was, you know, luxury and so forth. Uh, I, I even see it today. I go to the supermarket and, and now and you see what sorts of things have been picked clean and what hasn't. And like the olive oil still there, like <laughs> one stocking and I stock up on olive oil. <laughs> like, um, so there, there's some real differences there. Also, the the mac and cheese gone except for those that say goat cheese. Goat still cheese there. mac and cheese sounds delicious. <laughs> no, also, yeah, probably not to to children of a certain age. Right, that's right. But to children of their forties and fifties, perhaps yes. <laughs> the other thing I noticed that was totally there at the supermarket the um, weekend after our shutdown order when it got very very intense. Piles of cabbages, beautiful, beautiful cabbages, as if nobody knew what to do with them. And I was like, people, this is good food. You should eat this. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. In the in the Byzantine monastic uh, typica, one of the punishments for various kinds of uh, infractions was xerophagia, uh, uh, dry eating. Uh, in other words, you don't yeah. get to soak it in anything or it's not cooked in, you know. Mm -hmm. Oil, anyway. Yeah, so, and <clears throat> if these uh, hermits have disciples and the disciples appear on the margins of the text, like we don't know exactly what they're doing, it's very likely that they are conduits uh, between the, the, the more important holy man, the, the, the master, and the rest of the community. I mean, they might be coming back and forth to all kinds of things that, that are outside the, 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 the view of our texts. Yes, and I mean, you know, again, the, the kind of paradigmatic hermit is Antony, right? And uh, yet we have all these letters from Antony to his followers, which, by the way, never say anything like, I live by myself and this is why I do it, which is kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, they bespeak a culture where people are carrying letters back and forth to his um, rather remote desert retreat. They are seeking for his advice. He's writing back to them. There's a whole, yeah, there's a whole network of people interacting with this person. And a lot of women come to these holy men, right, uh, uh, pretty often to ask them uh, questions about, uh, you know, childbirth or, or health or the health of their children and so on. And I imagine they're also bringing uh, a gift or something to be blessed or something like that, right? But they get mentioned, uh, I think, in the text only in order to highlight the, the prophetic or miraculous power of the hermit, uh, like their social context and economic contribution to the whole enterprise isn't highlighted as such, right? We have to infer it. Right. It's almost backwards even. If, you, if we think about Theodoret's religious history again, women come to Simeon and other monks to get reproductive help, but oftentimes those monks are doing things like cupping their hands and making oil out of their hands. So they're the productive ones rather than the women who are coming for their help. It's just interesting to see where substances come from when you look at the split between mostly male, although there are some female uh, hermits in Theodoret's story, but mostly male hermits and these women who all need help and support. When you think economically or structurally, 
the reality on the ground might have been quite the opposite, that the women were doing things like providing, supporting, nourishing, and these ascetic men might not have been doing, might not have been producing anything other than blessings. Right. Yeah. It goes to what kind of labor is recognized there. And the, right. the, the yeah, the spiritual labor is, is highlighted in the text. So do we know anything about the experience of, of women uh, who chose to be hermits or? Not actually, yeah. In, in, in my area, which is, you know, late ancient Egypt, this is actually a vigorous debate right now among uh, scholars of monasticism, because there are a few stories of female hermits like a woman named Sarah, and, um, and then there's this woman from whom we have a life of called Syncletica, and so on. And there's one school of thought, which is that uh, there were, if there were any female hermits in the way we're thinking about it, they were extremely few, and that most of these accounts are made up. They're, they're fantasies about women living in the desert and so forth. On the other hand, there are people who say, well, if you look at our evidence from a little bit of a different angle, you find references to such. So for example, um, in the White Monastery of the fourth and fifth centuries of Shenouda, who Anthony and I talked about in an earlier podcast, they have network, they have affiliated hermits, hermits who live outside the monastery but are affiliated with it. They have to come four times a year to the big meetings or whatever. And he mentioned, you know, one of the rules says every hermit, whether male or female, must do X, Y, and Z. So there's a reference to female hermits associated with the monastery. Um, and then we have some papyrological evidence. Some of these caves have female names inscribed in them, these tombs that we've been talking about. Um, so that, but there's a real, there's a real gender bias. And some of it may well be simply practical, the danger, for example, of a woman living alone, for example, um, and so forth. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to exactly know how many such female hermits there were in late ancient Egypt, and even if there were. Yeah, and to the degree that their, 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 their calling would have led them to into the, uh, the, you know, the part of the spiritual economy that was more based on, you know, blessings and prayer and so on, they become masculinized in the text, right? The, in other words, this is pretty common in ancient literature. When a woman is doing something good, she's like exhibiting male virtues. Um, well, yeah, Sarah, Sarah the, the female hermit, some men came and like basically dissed her, you know, what, what do you think you are doing this? And she famously replied, it is I who am the man, you are women. You know, so yeah, there's a definite masculinization of this as an activity. And of course, we have multiple stories of male hermit, not multiple, yes, not many, I should make clear. But we have stories of male hermits who, when they die, are revealed to have been women. Right. So they, they masquerade or pass as men. Um, right. Or, or their extreme asceticism, I'm thinking of the case of uh, Mary of Egypt, their extreme asceticism basically strips them of any determining, you know, uh, sexual difference, like they're, they're so emaciated and whatnot that they effectively cease to be women. Um, you know, that also happens. Yes. And there were, there were, <laughs> there were women gladiators in ancient Rome, like for real. <laughs> so why not? Uh, anyway. Uh, there, so there are a couple of paradoxes I wanted to talk about 
um, that occur in the in the literature um, on these uh, on these ascetics. Um, and <clears throat> so one is this tension of trying to get away from crowds and just the temptations of social life versus, on the other hand, in, in so doing, you attract crowds to yourself uh, and you thought you were getting away and then they, the city comes to you, right? This seems to be a common theme and certainly in the life of Anthony, right? But in, in others, right? So how do these ascetics or their, the authors sort of negotiate this tension? Well, I mean, the, the disciple system is, a, is, I mean, in real life, I'm going to say what I think actually happened in yeah. real life. I mean, I think the disciple system we were talking about was, was one of the ways they dealt with this. That is, the disciple or disciples would manage the relationship between the hermit and others, right? They were kind of like the buffer zone between them, right? Um, you know, and... And a lot of the uh, literature just kind of accepts this paradox and often tries to um, um, diffuse it by having stories where the monk, say, goes out and is with other people and is so at a loss, like a fish out of water, Anthony would say, has to run back and so mm. on. But, um, but a lot of it just um, acknowledges this problem and, and tries to find ways to deal with it. There's the second sort of uh, more subtle part of it too, which is that once you self-isolate, it can be very tempting to think about going back and being with people and being with crowds. So there's an entire part of the literature that addresses what you do when you're by yourself and you are lonely or you're thinking about the people that you've left behind and feeling guilty. So on top of managing crowds that might come to see you, you have to also manage your desire to go see the crowds and to go um, be with other people. Right. That must have been a, a constant temptation. It's a thing that they, and I'm on this podcast now with an expert about demons, but it's a thing that they actually demonize. So Evagrius of Pontus, who's a late fourth century writer, um, has a pretty intense theory of how demons work with monks, especially those who are isolating and spending time by themselves. And he thinks of um, these kinds of, um, I don't know, impulses or desires, both as demons and as thoughts that come to you. He has an elaborate system for dealing with the thoughts that come to you. So I'm by myself and I think, let me go out and maybe, you know, be a pastor and have a church and have people who know me and listen to my voice. I can help them. I actually should be helping them because I'm a more, um, advanced spiritual practitioner than they are. You see how quickly it becomes, I need to leave my cell and go be with a group of people. And Evagrius writing about that suggests that that's actually a demonic thought trying to get you to stop self-isolating. So external to you. Right. But also perhaps a little internal. I mean, this is why I'm, I'm going to uh, pitch to David because he's written extensively about how these thoughts slash demons are both external and internal. Yeah, I mean, one could argue that the, the demonization of these thoughts is perhaps a way of actually externalizing and therefore rejecting things that in fact arise within oneself, right? I mean, they call them thoughts, so they are in your head, right? And, um, but nonetheless, they are somehow put in you by demons, 
um, but demons who are somehow alert to your own psychic vulnerabilities and right. are very observant of you, and they have to talk about how do they know what's going on within you. Well, they can only know by observing. They really can't read your mind. You know, they have to tell you these things. Um, but um, I mean, it's it's in some ways a very different way of thinking about these processes than we have, which we do tend to think of them as coming up from within us, while they tend to say that they do, yeah, they come from outside of us. But you find other, I was, I was reading this morning, this monk named Paul of Tama, who, is, uh, who just wrote a whole thing called On the Cell, and it's all about just stay in your cell, just stay in your cell, just stay in your cell. And for him, it really is more about you you know, and your own um, desires and less about demons. So they would vary in how they kind of measured the interior and exterior dimensions of this. I'd like yeah. to read you a passage from sure. um, one of Evagoras' works because I think it will be familiar to many of us who are going through isolation right now. This is, um, it's from a thing called Eight Thoughts and he's talking about the demon slash thought of listlessness or Acadia. And he says, the eye of the monk afflicted with this thought stares at the doors continuously and his intellect imagines people coming to visit. The window, sorry, the door creaks and he jumps up. He hears a sound and he leans out the window and does not leave the window until he gets stiff from sitting there and watching. And I live on a street that has some pedestrian traffic. And I have to tell you, the last two weeks, I know everybody and their dog. I don't greet them, but I watch them go past. And I'm like, oh, Jenny's going pie with Hazel at 10.15 instead of 10.30. I mean, it's that level of detail now. So I think isolation makes it very difficult not to pay attention to external distraction. In fact, it heightens that external distraction. Right. Yeah. There's a few times I've been actually alone uh, here, just in Columbus, uh, for weeks. Uh, the 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 mailman uh, is the high point uh, of of the day often. <laughs> just downhill yeah. after that. You know, and uh, I mean, one thing that it's um, that they, you know, we can think about coping mechanisms. How do you deal with? that. I mean, Avagrius suggested things like reciting biblical verses, but one of the things we have to realize they were doing is they had memorized psalms and other things that they would recite and literally recite. I mean, they said them out loud. There was none of this kind of thinking in your head thing that we are. It was all a very verbal culture. And so um, they had memorized, you know, vast portions of scripture and they would recite these things to kind of keep their mind focused and to try to avoid this kind of um, cabin fever that makes you very interested in going outside the space that you are, that you are in. Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of things that you've mentioned that I, that I wanted to uh, pick up on. So first about the demons, um, especially in a later Byzantine context or middle Byzantine, I, I almost, I, I generally have the impression that demons are a way of exculpating People, I mean, not getting them off the hook. I don't mean that, but right. of, of, of a way of getting people to uh, uh, recognize some sort of sin that they've committed, but not to be identified with that sin. That there's a way that you can cast it out and move on without being defined by it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, in those terms, I sometimes perhaps find it uh, better or more humane than today. You know, we tend to identify people with the worst things that they've done. Um, you know, obviously, anyway, 
Um, but there's also a um, there's also a narrative dimension, and I, I mean it in the following way. Like, so th- this is this is just me, but I, I've never been particularly impressed with like the medium of film in in terms philosophically, because for me the best thing that people can be doing is thinking and thinking is largely not representable in, in film. Like you can show a person thinking it's the most boring thing ever. And you have to work really, really hard in a film medium, visual medium or narrative medium to convey an intellectual process. It can be done. It's just very difficult. Um, and so if your subject is a hermit who sits in a cave and prays or has thought, thinks about God or whatever, that's, that's not easy to represent. Um, and what narrative wants is some sort of drama which has protagonists. And you need to start in, introducing a social context of some kind in order to have people doing things. And I think that in part, the demons function that way like in a narrative way they exist in order to enable the protagonist to interact with something yes yes i think that's uh, completely right um i mean a who would want to read a story of someone who just serenely prayed and said you know the jesus prayer and recited psalms all day for years and had food brought to them and uh you know this is not interesting. And it doesn't provide any kind of inspiration for me, the reader or ordinary Christian who doesn't perhaps aspire to be a hermit who fights with demons, but does have to struggle with, you know, the temptations to do little ordinary sins in life. And so, yes, these are, these are dramatic narratives in order to inspire others and to encourage them to be the best Christians they can be, which can never be as great as these people who are like Marvel superheroes, but you can be, you know, your own little journey version of this. Yes. Yeah, because I've never had any demons come to me <laughs> when I'm alone, which <laughs> is, you know, it's unfortunate. <laughs> um, the most that comes is, is boredom. Um, I can imagine many people would get depressed and and um, Ellen mentioned akizia or listlessness. And, and this is the one I wanted to, the second thing I wanted to pick up on because um, again, we don't have that many texts uh, that talk about what we would recognize as depression. Uh, and I think this is the closest concept to it in, in the text. So Ellen, do you want to tell us what listlessness, listlessness means? Because it's not, well, it's, it's not a household word. The minute that you said that you'd never had a demon, I wanted to read this passage to you. Again, from Evagrius. This is from his uh, treatise called The Practicos. And ask you if you've never been visited by this thing. Okay. The demon of Acadia, also called the noonday demon, is the most oppressive of all the demons. He attacks the monk at about 10 a.m. and besieges his soul until about 2 p.m. First of all, he makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all, and that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly towards the windows, to jump out of the cell, to watch the sun to see how far it is from the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m., to look this way and that, lest one of his brothers do, and then there's a lacuna. He instills in him a dislike for the place and for his state of life itself, for manual labor and the idea that the love has disappeared from among the brothers and there is no one to console him. 
He leads him on to a desire for other places where he can easily find the wherewithal to meet his needs and pursue a trade that is easier and more productive. He joins these suggestions to the memory of his close relations in his former life. He depicts for him the long course of his lifetime and brings all the burdens of asceticism before his eyes. Tell me you've never sat through a meeting that went on for 50 years <laughs> or wanted to leave or that wanted is, to go somewhere else. Like yeah. you've been visited. You just didn't call it a demon. And that I think, you know, I, I'm not part of the Christian tradition. I don't have a faith commitment to these texts, but I will say that Evagrius's writing about demons and thoughts is to me the most kind of engaging and salient description from the ancient world of the problems of psychology and the problems of, just being a person in the world and having to deal with boredom and disappointment. And so Acadia is, I think one of the more modern, I guess, what's the word? One of the demons that seems easily described to modern people. We all say, Oh yeah, I've been in that meeting or I've wanted to move, you know? Right. Not, yeah. Not with demons, but deans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, it's, it's entirely familiar. Um, and I, in fact, many years ago, I had had a conversation about Akizia with uh, Garth Foden, who was uh, uh, he was also um, looking into that, and um, it, it was very familiar. And I have to say, yeah, I did experience that um, more as a like toward the end of the passage that you just read, where it's the the monk is feeling that it's all kind of pointless. Like, why am I doing? You kind of lose your, yeah. you know. And I, I, yeah, I totally used to feel that way. So periodically, a few times a year, I would, I would get that. And I mean, I think we've been right to query just how isolated these hermits really were. But on the other hand, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine a world where, I mean, uh, some of these guys might have had books with them. I mean, definitely in a vagary instead. I mean, these, you know, so forth. But there would have been absolutely no real, in, there would have been no internet, there would have been nothing to distract you, um, even noise. I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm obviously haven't been left to my house except for taking walks for a long time, but there's a construction project a block away and it's making noise and guys are working and nonetheless and so forth. Um, the, the absolute quietness must have also been something that's hard to imagine. So, um, uh, so I do think that, it, yeah, it's hard for us to imagine that these things come from demons, but the absolute stillness and the lack of any kind, right. you know, for long periods of time of any kind of distraction or interruption in, in the nothingness must have led to all sorts of strange feelings, even for ancient people where I assume, I mean, my understanding of ancient cities, even villages, is just as we talked at the beginning of this, just crowded and noisy and you know no privacy at all so it must have been an i i think a really deeply odd experience for some of these guys yeah are, are you like referring to studies of the uh, the effects of sensory deprivation you know that can drive Not, people mad uh, i right? think that would be good to look into <laughs> yeah yeah and and i like the part that this is called a noonday demon <laughs> yeah because you know, we have this image from Hollywood that horror is all dark and shadowy, you know, and it's, and it's always a overcast and you know, all that. But in fact, like if you live in Greece and so on, that uh, even in, in antiquity, when when people in like pagan antiquity, when people would encounter really scary gods, it was very often a bright light. It was in, in the middle of the sun and, and 
like there's some real potential for for horror and, and fear there. Uh, that's when they would encounter Pan. <laughs> like when you're alone in the woods and you'd encounter, that's when you'd encounter Pan. It was the scariest thing. Right. Anyway. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. I was just wondering if you, and this is a great conversation. We can obviously go on, but I was just wondering if you had some final thoughts and we could wrap it up. Um, I, I think, you know, if I were to take anything away from these people who were um, forcibly by themselves, perhaps in a situation, but in a, in a situation that they chose, right? I mean, they chose to be by themselves and in these, in this, for their own goals and purposes. Um, I mean, I take away the fact that, um, that thinking about yourself and about you in connection with others can in fact be a very productive thing to do. That is um, something that can feel at first perhaps oppressive, um, you know, thinking so much about how to get food and how to remain connected with others and so forth and so on can eventually lead to some insight about oneself. And I think um, at this time we need to take away stuff like that that may be helpful to folks who find this not a very comfortable experience, like me, for instance. Right. I think that, uh, again, taking away or maybe discounting the amplitude of the stories because these are narratives and so they're going to be more interesting and more you know, fantastical than perhaps reality was, but even just discounting that, I think that monastic literature demonstrates that human beings have incredible psychological resources for getting through self-isolation. I mean, this is, I think, why you asked us here is because we're all looking at the prospect of months, um, you know, by ourselves or in our little pods of people that we are all um, hunkering down with. And it can be challenging, I think, whether one is alone or whether one is with two or three or five other people to manage the day in and day out. But these sources tell us people have done this with a lot less comfort than we have available to us. So I take heart from that. I actually, I would. Oh, would be a bad thing. Uh, so we lost you there a little bit at the, at the end. We oh, sorry. Take part in that. Um, I was just thinking I take heart from this because in preparation for meeting today, I reread some of Evagrius and I thought, you know, Ellen, it wouldn't be bad to just read a little Evagrius every day during this because it gives you some resources that, yes, are part of me, but I just don't usually tap into. And monks were doing this with a lot less um, at hand and a lot fewer resources than we have. Right. Yeah, Evagrius is great. I mean, I would totally recommend um, everyone to read him uh, because he's, I, I think, among all ancient writers, right, he's one of the most uh, subtle in terms of his psychology and in sort of analyzing, you know, what happens to to people when they reach certain, what I call the, the limits of human nature um, and in, in putting yourself in difficult situations. Um, and actually, I think um, that both the literature, the aesthetic literature and aesthetic practice, uh, at, like the situation that we're in now is this kind of disruption, it's a radical disruption that reveals things about the way we were living that we were taking for granted and hadn't thought about that much. But now it's we're forcing ourselves to sort of examine, you know, what, what do I need who, who, in terms of not only stuff, but people and how do I work these things out that we had other mechanisms for ignoring those kinds of questions in the past. 
That's right. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a great time to uh, to rethink some of those things and uh, and make more podcasts because now we're all at home and can <laughs> connect via these technologies so instantly. It's just great. Well, thank you both. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation. I'll try to get it up as soon as possible. Thank you, Anthony. It was great to do. Great to hear both your voices. Hope you're all well. Yes. Yes. Take care. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Bye.